0: Thursday, June ninth, twenty eleven. It's cooler today in Indiana. (laughs) Makes me happier, (laughs) and it makes it easier to enjoy my favorite cup of coffee. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Surely there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And, uh, they well, it's, it's kind of needless, if uh, you know what I mean. The reason why it's so needless is because, well, we have a book. It's called the Bible, and we can trust God's Word. God's Word is trustworthy and true. It is inerrant, inspired, it is the only infallible source of information regarding the one true God. Uh, It gives us an accurate picture of God because God has revealed himself in his word, and ultimately he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God, the second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus anyway, um sadly, uh well, uh, Jesus prophesied and predicted that things would be as bad as they are today, and well he was spot on and well it's is there any wonder as to why he would be spot on he 's God in human flesh, and that is, is he said uh, we 're run amuck with false teachers, false prophets, wolves, in sheep 's clothing, and so this program teaches you how to use god 's word to spot the wolf um. Yeah, you, you, you can think of it as like that Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. One of these things just doesn't belong here. Yeah, and the way we discover that is by opening up the scriptures, beca- being good students of God's word and uh, and knowing the truth so well, knowing what the Bible says to the point where when something hits our ears, we go, wait a second, that doesn't sound right because God's word says X, Y, or Z. Rather than going, I'm going to train myself to be a Jedi, and if I get an intuitive gut check in my spirit that tells me that something isn't true, uh, or that, that something is this way or that way, I'll know intuitively via a gut check whether or not it's r- true or false. Yeah, no, 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 no. We've got to have open Bibles. And that does require of you, dear Christian, uh, that you become, well, literate in God's Word, fluent in what it says, uh, that you are in it to the point where you are ever increasing in your knowledge and understanding of what God has revealed there. And uh, we provide uh, kind of the rudimentary skills here on the program and uh, in the resources that we offer our listeners who are members of our crew we give you know, more information as to you know better resources so that you can become a skilled student of god's word an able defender and proclaimer of the gospel and uh, and a good theologian and apologist you know because all of us are at different times are called upon to proclaim and defend the historic christian faith uh by uh, either in evangelism or to uh, defend uh, the church from enemies outside and within. So, it's a it's a lot of work. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and uh, you know, you're thinking, "Well, Chris, I mean, is that really sanctified?" Yes, it truly is. I I recommend that you read the passages that that um, that discuss such things. For instance, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and his handling of the prophets of Baal. You'll read the passage, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Anyway. We have got a long way to go today. This is a program that's going to take some time, and I want to make sure that I get everything that I want to get in, in on today's program. And I'm going to begin backwards. I'm going to start backwards. I'm going to work from – well, I'm, I'm going to work in a nonlinear timeline <laughs> talking about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Let me first say that um, I, I have a a request. I uh, There are some of you who – uh, Listen to Fighting for the Faith and You Can't Stomach the Bad Sermons. I understand that. I, I get the emails from some of you all basically saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I need you to do it. Um, today we're not going to do a bad sermon. We're going to do a good sermon. But, you know, you're going, but? Yeah, I, listen to listen to my request. I want you to listen to today's sermon that I'm going to review. I want you to listen to yesterday's sermon that I reviewed and uh, i'm even considering making a special edition of fighting for the faith and uh and basically taking the two sermon uh the two sermons putting them side by side in one uh downloadable mp3 file you know in the podcast a special edition with the idea of exploring this question and uh here's um here's the idea uh yesterday we reviewed uh Ed Young Jr's uh, sermon entitled Swagger Jacker. I think I can. That's the uh, the name of the sermon. And uh and Ed Young Jr is uh, he he's famous for his creativepastors.com website where he teaches pastors to be relevant and creative and hip and and you know on the cutting edge of cultural relevancy and and contextualization in order to to make the Bible accessible and understandable to the so-called religious seeker. I mean, that's one of the primary ideas behind the seeker-driven, purpose-driven methodology. Well, here's what I would like you to do. Today's sermon, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Dr. Mark Dever. Thank you all for those of you who sent me uh, uh, the correct pronunciation of his uh, name. I thought it was Dever. It's not. It's Dever. Dr. Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington D.C. and uh, something I want to point out, okay? Uh, Mark Dever's church is not seeker-driven, is not purpose-driven, and um, they, this church has not taken a sociological survey to determine the felt needs of the so-called religious seekers in and around Washington D.C. Uh, they, uh, you know, they are very different. Than the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches that have that you know do such silly sociological things. Um, and uh the Capitol Hill Baptist Church uses a hymnal. Okay, and to make matters worse, contrary to the advice of all of the Uber church growth specialists out there, Dr. Mark Dever does expository and expositional biblical teaching. Okay. So, um, in other words, they are doing just about everything wrong that you could possibly be doing wrong, according to the so-called new methods developed by the seeker-driven and purpose-driven guys, the leadership networks, uh, uh, you know, those who follow, uh, you know, the church methodologies of Peter Drucker. Okay, so you keep this in mind. P- uh, Mark Dever does everything wrong according to these uh, church growth gurus. But I want you to answer this question. Who gave a clearer and easier to understand presentation of what the Bible teaches, of the biblical gospel, in order that a non Christian who showed up to church that day could understand the basics of the Christian faith, what salvation is? What Christ has done for us, et cetera, and so forth. Okay, and I want you to compare this to the leading guru, uh, you know, one of the top leading gurus in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven uh, churches, and that's uh, Ed Young Jr. Ed Young Jr. flies around in a private jet, uh, pastoring pastors to teach them how to be as creative and hip and relevant as he is. And he gets paid big bucks to do this. and so you know, I just want to lay side by side in your mind uh, these two sermons and basically ask the question if a non-believer were to show up to either one of these churches on you know on the respective Sundays when these uh, sermons were preached, would the who would get the clearer and more understandable presentation of biblical Christianity, uh, the one who attended mark uh, Dr. Mark Devers' church or the one who attended Fellowship Church there in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area under the teaching of Ed Young, Jr. When you ask that question and you look and you listen to these sermons with this in mind, I think you're going to come to a conclusion, the conclusion that maybe, just maybe, these seeker-driven uh, uh, sermons— actually don't deliver the thing as that they say they're promising to deliver you know a uh, uh, easier to understand more relevant presentation of Christianity to the so-called religious seeker. In fact, I'm c- convinced these seeker driven uh, pastors rather than making the uh, the b- biblical gospel more accessible, actually make it less accessible uh, by their um, let's say, prostitute-like whoring after, um, you know, relevance. Yeah. Did that sound strong enough? Anyway, so my advice, you need to listen to today's sermon that we're going to be reviewing. It's going to be on the topic of propitiation. He's going to be, uh, Dr. Mark Dever is preaching from Romans chapter 3, and it's brilliant. It's wonderful. You're going to really, really uh, be edified as a result of this fantastic biblical teaching. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, but I need you to, uh, listen to yesterday's sermon, uh, from Ed Young Jr., and just ask yourself, if you were a non-believer, who gave the, um, the more easy-to-understand presentation of, uh, Christianity and the biblical gospel? All right, uh, so, uh, let's, uh, see this. So that's in hour number two. So I'm starting backwards here today. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, anyway, um... Let's see. I got a um, I got <laughs> I got an email from not an email, a Facebook posting from Scott Kingsolver. And um uh, Scott sent me a, the um link to a news story. Uh Frisco, Texas by the way is uh the uh it, the, where Scott Kingsolver resides or in and around there. And so does Keith Craft. Uh, if you uh if you uh, listened to f- a couple of days ago or on the podcast listen to the Mariachi Trench episode of Fighting for the Faith and you listen to the Sermon Review, well then you know that um Keith Kraft <laughs> uh <clears throat> of uh, Mariachi Trench fame you you have to hear it if you haven't heard it um it, well I've got a news story basically saying he's plan- he's planning to build a 10-story uh, cathedral in Frisco Texas so we'll take a look at that news story and uh, and then uh, uh, Car- uh, Carl Guyverson has uh well weighed in at the Huffington Post once again Yes, that bastion of sound biblical theology, their religion section there at the Huffington Post. <clears throat> yeah, It hurts to say words like that, uh, even in, in, you know, sarcastically. But uh, he's uh, he's got a new uh, op-ed piece, and the name of it is, Is Accepting Evolution Optional for Christians? We'll take a look at that. Um, I've got a new uh, piece from Albert Muller uh, entitled, The Church and the Clobber Scriptures, The Bible on Homosexuality. And then, uh, Lord willing uh, and time permitting, we'll take a quick listen to um, a recent video posted by Todd Bentley. Remember I remember I've told you he's back. Well, he's back. I mean, the guy's doing full blown ministry again. Todd Bentley, otherwise known as Bam Bam. Um, you know, he's uh, he's back, and uh, the name of uh, this video is entitled "The Burning Ones." Uh, <laughs> yeah, when. Yeah, I think of Todd Bentley and the Burning Ones. I think of people that are going to hell. Anyway, we'll take a look at uh, we'll take a look at that. So we've got a long way to go today, and a short time to get there. And uh, that sounds like a song that I remember from the '70s. Something about uh, smoking the bandit. Anyway, make yourself comfortable. Uh, keep in mind, fighting for the faith has been known to decrease productivity. This is one of those programs that uh, could cause you to suffer from. Frustrative brain explosion. Oh, and by the way, somebody did on my Facebook wall ask me yesterday if pounding their forehead into the steering wheel in their vehicle could cause the uh, the airbag to deploy. And, you know, so I basically I don't know the answer to that question, but let's just assume that the answer is yes. So if you're listening to Fighting for the Faith while driving, do not, under any circumstances uh you know pound your forehead into your steering wheel that could cause something terrible to happen and you may be injured so this is a dangerous dangerous program very very dangerous so yeah, I i just want you to keep that in mind all right so with that let's dive into the uh the program proper Ah, yes, mariachi music. That can mean only one thing. Yep, yeah, it means we're going to be doing an update on Elevate Life Church and Keith Craft. That's right, Keith Craft, the discoverer of the dangers of the number 11, as well as the mariachi trench, has had a story written up about him recently on the dallasnews.com website. All right, let's kill the mariachi music. A story written by Valerie Wigglesworth of the Dallas Morning News. Uh, The headline reads, Elevate Life Church of Frisco plans to build 10-story cathedral. Now, here's the good news. I mean, after the sermon that we heard earlier this week um, in the Mariachi Trench uh, sermon review, um, I'm 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 glad to hear that the uh, that the cathedral that uh, Keith Craft is building is not eleven stories because that would be the the number of disintegration and and uh, disaster. So um, at ten, apparently, uh, I'm hoping that it has some good s- significance. But anyway, uh, Valerie writes. She says Keith Craft is not your typical pastor. He's not a household name. Yet he's shared the stage with the likes of Margaret Thatcher, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Bill Clinton. <laughs> really? <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> Seeing, I just I cannot visualize Keith Kraft sharing the stage with Margaret Thatcher, Bill Clinton. I can action. I can actually. I can picture that, but uh, Margaret Thatcher. Anyway, for the past decade, he's been at the helm of an interdenominational church whose rapid growth has mirrored that of the suburb it calls home. Yeah, I think I'm beginning to think that the reason why his church is growing so fast is because it, uh, Keith Craft, well, he teaches the same nonsense that most people already believe anyway. Uh, you know, it, there's nothing coherent in his theology, as, as is you know the same with most nonbelievers anyway. Anyway, um, uh. He's now on a mission. Keith Kraft is on a mission to build a sanctuary that ex, that's expected to be one of the tallest buildings in Frisco once completed next year. In quote, in the day in the old days Europe especially the whole purpose for a steeple was that there would it would be the pinnacle building in that community to point people toward Christ, Kraft said. That's his his hope for what's being called the Cathedral of Frisco <laughs> which will stretch about 10 stories high, and connect with its existing church building on 27 acres in eastern Denton County. The building's gothic architecture draws on the historic traditions of the church, but inside it will have all the modern-day accoutrements, like stadium-style seating for 3000 and a state-of-the-art technology that comes with the megachurch status. He calls the church's design a timeless paradigm. People won't have to guess that this is a church. Message spreads, heading up uh, Elevate Elevate Life Church with his wife, Sheila, wasn't always in the cards for craft. He was a traveling man. For years, he was among a group of Christian bodybuilders touring the world to preach the gospel while wowing crowds with feats of strength. They bent steel. they busted apart police handcuffs, and they crushed giant stacks of concrete. Yeah, it makes you wonder if... uh, Maybe Keith Kraft, while he was a traveling bodybuilder, was um, crushing giant stacks of concrete with his forehead, and and that might explain what happened to him, and 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 the resulting bizarre theology that ensued. Anyway. People are drawn to the spectacular, Kraft said, uh, of his reason for founding strike force. It was a tool to reach people for Christ. He branched out into motivational speaking, meeting with corporations, and appearing at events big and small alongside of some of the world's most renowned leaders. He also appeared regularly over the years with friend and televangelist Joel Osteen. <sighs> <laughs> that explains a few things pastor of Houston's Lakewood church and the largest in the nation coin crafted the term leadershipology, the study of leadership and formed a nonprofit to help people develop the necessary traits. His message spread in 1999, a group from Frisco chartered a bus to go hear him speak afterward. They invited him and his wife to start a church in their town. Poor things anyway, celebrate. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> That explains a little bit of uh, Keith Craft's backstory and um, might have uh, some explanatory value as to why he teaches such things as uh, about the number 11 in the mariachi trench. So there you go. Okay, moving along. She loves the monkey's uncle, ho, ho She loves the monkey's uncle. And the
1: monkey's uncle ain't for me.
0: Yeah, that's Annette Funicello. Well,
1: I don't care what the whole world thinks. She, she loves, loves the monkey's,
0: the monkeys uncle. Was Singing with the Beach Boys there.
1: missing links. She loves
0: the monkey's uncle. Rubble
1: is monkey shy. The monkey's
0: uncle, and the monkey's uncle, they for me, they for me. There we go, that's right, monkey shine. It's monkey shine time uh, to talk about uh, the uh, the, <clears throat> the mythology of evolution. Uh, Carl Geiberson of the BioLogos, uh, of Biologos fame has a new op-ed piece that appeared on uh, June 3rd in the uh, Huffington Post. Yes, that, that bastion of sound biblical theology and and defending the Bible against all of its attacks from people who would deny it and say that it doesn't say what it means and mean what it says or anything like that. <laughs> anyway, the name of the, uh, the the op-ed piece by Dr. Carl Guyberson is, Is Accepting Evolution Optional for Christians? And I think he's going to probably argue that, no, we should as Christians embrace it. And I'm saying, why? Uh, there's no scientific compelling evidence to... Anyway, anyway... Uh, <clears throat> Guyverson writes, this is after years in the trenches of the creation evolution controversy. I have come to appreciate the complexity of navigating the foggy world of knowledge claims. This is something that college students start learning to do in their first critical writing course and are supposed to master by the time they write a senior thesis. Students begin researching on any topic by Googling and gathering various viewpoints in that way. Which they then assemble into arguments, it takes time to learn the limitations of this approach and the importance of understanding that the opinions of someone who do who does not know what they are talking about are of no value okay so okay, so the primary point number one by talk by Dr. Carl Geerson is that is that the opinions of someone who does not know what they are talking about are of no value. And this would be regarding the creation and evolution debate, okay? With you there, Carl, okay. A student doing a paper on evolution, for example, needs to learn that the opinion of Michelle Bachman, of Tea Party fame, is of no value. As a recent HuffPost blog argued, Bachman knows nothing about the topic, and while her opinion would be interesting because of her celebrity status— It would not be informed. Mm, uh, Okay. In contrast, Jerry Kanye, uh, when he isn't venting about the horrors of religion, writes a lot about evolution and is well-informed as a leading biologist at a major university. A student paper examining the pros and cons of evolution versus creation that pitted Bachman against Kanye would receive an F for improper use of sources. Yeah, you know, um, that's kind of an interesting way to start off, Carl. Um, the reason why is because um, I would never use Michelle Bachman as a source to refute or challenge the claims of evolution. In fact, most of the the guys that I know, who uh, and I talk to regularly, who deny the uh, evolution and challenge its uh, assertions... Um, they would never use Michelle Bachman as an example. They do it on scientific grounds. It's kind of weird that you would kind of start off, kind of painting the picture of a Christian who would challenge the claims of uh, of Darwinian evolution as somebody who would have to resort to you know, quoting somebody like Michelle Bachman. Anyway, on the other hand, Michelle Bachman has had extraordinary experience with raising children. Five of her own and amazing twenty-three foster children, her insights into foster care and family life would most likely be of great value, more so than Jerry Kanye's for example, but in both cases, the consensus of bodies of experts would be far more reli- a far more reliable starting point, and it would be essential to note whether any individual, regardless of their expertise, was at odds with a scholarly community on the topic of interest. This kind of critical thinking about sources and expertise is essential in navigating the complexity of our modern scientific world and developing sensible and defensible positions on everything from the age of the earth to the real cost of Medicare. Unfortunately, America has an uneasy relationship with experts. Many people don't like the idea of consulting some egghead at a university to get The scoop on complex problems, even though that egghead might be the world's leading expert and hold a position endorsed by the National Academy of Sciences. Every night on Fox News, Glenn Beck assaults expertise in education as if they are just different prejudices. He regularly pits his high school diploma against teams of Ivy League doctorates. In a most amazing performance as America's leading anti-intellectual, a few hours later on Fox News, Sean Hannity hosts a great American panel in which he asks former beauty queens, football coaches, and country singers to comment on complex political and economic questions. This sort of anti-intellectualism, the religious and political roots of which are documented in Richard Hofstadler's um, classic work, Anti-Intellectualism in America's Life, and examined from another perspective in my forthcoming book, The Anointed, The Evangelical Truth in a Secular Age, provides much of the foundation for the assaults being made today on evolution. We are regularly told that we can make up our own minds about evolution. The preferred education strategy being advanced is a two-models approach where evolution and some version of anti-evolution, like intelligent design, are presented and students are encouraged to make up their own minds. You you mean... Students are being told to examine the pros and cons of evolution versus creation based upon evidence and then told to make up their own minds based upon evidence. That's anti-intellectualism, Carl? Hmm. Carl then states, this is a disastrous approach to education. Anti-intellectualism disguised. As democratic egalitarianism, to expose high school students to fringe perspectives presented as genuine alternatives and then encouraging them to choose the one they like best is to send the message that there is no such thing as knowledge. This approach appeals to those who don't like the consensus of knowledge-generating communities. If global warming is forcing unwanted regulations on the smoke from your factory, then alternative ideas are most welcome. If sound economics says that taxes should go up, then please find some unsound ec- economics that say otherwise. And if scientific community says evolution is true, then please find a fringe group to say otherwise. After all, this is America, and, America's, and Americans think for themselves. Now, I want to point something out here. Notice what he's doing here. Basically saying, I've got a bunch of PhDs that are in a community that say that evolution is true, and they're experts, and to challenge them is the equivalent of engaging in anti-intellectualism. That's his tactic here. Uh, Aside from being a logical fallacy, um, uh, well, it kind of begs the question, um, really, are are the only people who are challenging the claims of evolution anti-intellectuals i would point you to a website you can find it by the way online and the name of it is descentfromdarwin.org descentfromdarwin.org a scientific defense a uh, defense descent from darwinism and there's a there's a there's a link that you can click on and it's called um, the list Mm -hmm. There's a scientific dissent from Darwinism. It deserves to be heard. And you can download the list of people who have signed on to this document. Let me read to you some of the people in this list. Philip Sheckel, emeritus, even... Poo, prof of chemistry from the Pennsylvania State University and member of the National Academy of Sciences. He has signed the Descent from Darwin list. Lyle L. Jensen, professor emeritus, Department of Biological Structure, Department of Biochemistry, University of Washington, fellow of the AAAS. K. Masato Anuha, shell professor of geology and deputy vice president and chancellor of the University of Nigeria. Uh, Ferenc Jezzenski, former head of the Center of Research Groups, you know, Hungarian Academy of the Sciences. Let's see here. Paul Ashby, PhD in chemistry from Harvard University. Henry Schaefer, director, Center of uh, Computational Quantum Chemistry at the University of Georgia. Robert W. Bass, Ph.D. In mathematics, also Rhodes Scholar, postdoc at Princeton at from John Hopkins University. Daniel W. Hines, Ph.D. geophysics from Texas A&M University. Richard Anderson, assistant professor of environmental science and policy, Duke University. Now, if you think that there's just a couple of quack scientists out there who've sign this list. Well, the list is, uh, well, over 400 strong. And signing on to the list, they uh, publicly, uh, basically are publicly stating that they are being skeptical of Darwinism. In fact, here's the thing that they, this is the quote from the list itself. We are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged and these are the scientists who've signed on to this. These are scientists who are publicly dissenting from Darwinianism, and it doesn't sound to me like they're um, doing it uh, as a form of anti-intellectualism, if you know what I mean. In fact, let me let, here's one of the uh, here's one of the uh, the uh, interviews that's available at the uh, Descent from Darwin. Dot org website, and it's uh, it, it's it's an interview with Dr. Ralph Silky. in
2: let's see if this I'm joined today by Professor of Biology Dr. Ralph Silky. Dr. Silke went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota and the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine. Finished his work for a Ph.D. in microbiology in 1981. He's been a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Superior since 1989. In 2004, he was a visiting scholar in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Stanford University Medical School, conducting research to further our understanding of evolution. Hmm, sounds like an anti-intellectual to me. Dr. Silke conducts lab research at the university that focuses on what can evolution really
0: do his main research and whoa, whoa, he's doing scientific revo, uh, uh, scientific research, like replicatable research to see what uh, what evolution can and can't do. Oh, he's an anti-intellectual.
2: Trist has been in experimental evolution. His work has resulted in seven presentations at regional or national scientific meetings since 2001 on the capabilities and limitations of evolution in producing new functions in bacteria. He is a co-author on eight publications in such journals as Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, Journal of Bacteriology, and Molecular and General Genetics. And we wanted to have Dr. Silky on today to talk with us a little bit about his research in experimental evolution. Well,
0: wow. <laughs> He's an anti-intellectual, obviously. He, he, doesn't, he, need to, he needs to understand that there's an entire community of scientists who have already determined that evolution is true and he cannot challenge them without doing without being an anti-intellectual because these scientists have already determined that this is that evolution is true and you cannot question them because they are experts how dare he actually engage in scientific research and experiments on the limitations of uh, of evolution. He is an anti-intellectual.
2: Welcome and thanks for being here, Dr. Silky. Hello. I know that you have a deep interest in evolution, obviously, and in understanding, I guess its capabilities and limitations, right. mm-hmm. especially in regards to microevolution and macroevolution. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if you could briefly explain for our listeners what microevolution and macroevolution
1: are. Well, uh A short answer would be microevolution is something that can be observed and macroevolution is something that has never been seen but you would possibly infer it from a fossil record. So uh, microevolution would be the sort of evolution of antibiotic resistance evolution of resistance to pesticides that insects and plants uh, develop. So it's the sort of thing that that are, are actually very important issues because people died because bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. Uh, whereas macroevolution would be the the larger things, and uh, and that's generally where the discussion on evolution comes out. It's it would be taking the large leaps, moving from a fish to an amphibian or an amphibian to a reptile or a reptile to an animal or or um, or possibly even some of the other steps that are going on. And in fact, the actual formation of a species, one species turning into another species, actually has never been observed. And it's the sort of thing that should be foundational to Darwinian evolution. But in fact, it's, to my knowledge, we have we have no direct evidence for that. Uh, we have never really seen it happen.
0: Hmm. Now, this is uh, Dr. Ralph Silkey, obviously somebody who isn't anti-intellectual. He is a scientist. Yet the next paragraph in Dr. Guyberson's op-ed piece states, in the book The Language of Science and Faith, Francis Collins and I cautioned our fellow Christians against holding out hope that there is a real alternative to accepting the consensus of the scientific community, especially as we see no need for Christians to be uneasy about evolution in the first place. We argue that it is significant that the scientific, scientific community has consensus on this question, and that consensus is a powerful reason to accept the truth of evolution. Hmm. Consensus. Consensus. Uh, Dr. Geiberson, I, 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 my question for you is, is that if, if there's all of this consensus regarding evolution, then why have 400 scientists from around the world from leading scientific institutions signed the uh, Descent from Darwinism document that's posted at the DescentFromDarwin.org website? Yeah, basically, he's just saying, basically, the experts have determined this for us. Don't question them. You Christians should not be looking for an alternative to evolution. This is already buttoned up and sealed. Our experts have got this under control. Don't you dare challenge our conclusions or the consensus of um, what we've determined. Hmm. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean... This, uh, this sounds like um, a religious institution, you know, that the, like the magisterium of, of the pope. The scientific popes have spoken, and you cannot challenge their conclusions. No, 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 no. And if you do so, you are anti-intellectual, and you, you are just stupid. Yeah, you need to stop looking for an alternative. We've already determined this to be true. The fact that Dr. Carl Geiberson is arguing in this way basically proves to me that uh, the evidence isn't on his side. Because if the evidence was really on his side, then it would be able to stand up to scientific scrutiny, whether it comes from a PhD in biochemistry or from a lady who raised 23 foster children. It doesn't matter who's asking the question. The truth is true regardless of your education level. Kind of weird that you know that at this point we're just supposed to bend the knee according to Carl Guyberson, to those who know better and not question yet at the same time you know i always and again question darwinian evolution on scientific grounds i don't see any compelling scientific reasons at all to believe that species you know you know the, you know the the um, the human species spontaneously popped into existence um, you know, uh, via evolution from a different species. We've never seen anything like that happen. And on top of it, now the geneticists are telling you that at least 10,000 humans had to evolve at the same time. Hmm. Sounds kind of ridiculous to me. You know, the one who says, you can't question us because we are scientists. Yeah. That just doesn't play well with me. Does it play well with you? I mean, should, should we just shut our mouths and Stop questioning and saying, "Wait a second, these these dots don't seem to be connected." Because a scientist said it. Because I've got a group of scientists, four hundred of them, who basically say, "Yeah, no, no, Darwinian um, Darwinian evolutionary theory is um, it needs to be challenged." Alright, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: It's... Monty
2: Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Bellagod. How can I help you? Hello, I received a -A Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay affirming. And sin itself just feels so
0: negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too.
2: Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes. My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent. Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful. That's what everyone names their God.
0: Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So, the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Bum, 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 bum. Right, we're back. Warning, just because you have a PhD doesn't mean that you're infallible. Funny, those guys always claim infallibility for their consensus, but not for the word of God. Isn't that weird? Anyway, needs to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we do depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Um, if you're not already a member of our crew, we still need about 190 of you to uh, join our crew uh, that that will ensure that we are able to make budget month after month after month, and uh, which is kind of important because by making budget, we can keep doing what we're doing and not have to worry about uh, not paying our bills. Anyway, yeah, not paying our bills is a bad thing. So if you're not already a member of our crew, uh, visit FightingForTheFaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button and uh, when you do uh, uh you know after you fill it out it's only $6.95 every month to support the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate christian radio and uh when you subscribe and join our crew i will send you a link to download our latest ebook and that's dr paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the gospel of matthew fantastic work it'll give you a f- uh, a flavor for what good sound biblical exegetical hermeneutics looks like and it was it's done on a popular lay level. It was done in the 1920s, long before post-modernity. It isn't influenced by any of the wacky, seeker-driven stuff. It's, it's just breathtakingly refreshing. And so, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so. Click on the Donate button on our website, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. From the Albertmuller.com website. The headline reads: The Church and the Clobber Scriptures, the Bible on Homosexuality. I think Albert Muller here is going to be talking a little bit about Jay Baker's recent book, Fall to Grace. <clears throat> Posted on Friday, June 3rd, Albert Muller writes, he says, Is the church guilty of beating people with a Bible? You know, beating them, you know. Hold still, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to just yeah, beat them with your Bible. As a, As strange as that argument might sound, <clears throat> it is actually a powerful weapon in the hands of those who are determined to normalize homosexuality and same-sex marriage within the church. Those pushing for the acceptance of homosexuality now argue that Christians opposed to to that agenda are clobbering sinners with the biblical text. Yes, there seems to be no authoritative original source for this very powerful rhetorical innovation, but it has become increasingly popular in recent years, and it is deployed as a way of subverting the Bible's condemnation of same-gender sexuality. In his new book, Fall to Grace, J. Baker, that's the son of... uh, Uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, anyway, uh, presents a classic form of this argument. Um, He is now the co-pastor of Revolution Church in New York City, a congregation described by New York Magazine as a church that is still figuring out its message. (laughs) That's a quote. New York Magazine, Jay Baker, uh, co-pastor of Revolution Church, it's a church that's still figuring out its message, will figure it out eventually. Well, it may be trying to figure out its message on some issues, but on homosexuality, its position is very clear. Jay Baker was only a tween when his parents became involved in the massive scandal that led to the collapse of their PTL ministry, complete with its theme park known as Heritage USA. As Baker makes clear, the big lesson he learned from that scandal was that Christians show precious little grace. In Fall to Grace, Baker sets out his vision of Christianity. He levels some legitimate criticisms at the church, but what he offers is a revisionist reworking of Christianity and the gospel that is actually just a rehash of Protestant liberalism in the early 20th century. In a lengthy and insightful profile of Jay Baker, Alex Morris of New York Magazine argues that Baker has reduced Christianity to a message of forgiveness and little else. Yeah, this is a form of gospel reductionism. Uh, quote, the rest of Protestant Christianity, however, um, he's basically prepared a to, to ditch a stance that pushes him beyond the far liberal wing of the evangelical Christian community into what is known as the emergent ministry. Morris notes... He describes the perplexity of some within Revolution Church who are trying to figure out what the church actually believes. He asks, once you strip so much out of Christianity, well, what's left? Jay Baker holds to an evolutionary theology. In Fall to Grace, he argues that there is an evolutionary theology within the Bible and that the character of God changes from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, By the way, Baker uh, is a close friend of uh, Brian McLaren. And uh, in fact, just just so you all know, um, uh, when Jay Baker was going through uh, you know a rough patch in his marriage, I think he ended up getting divorced. But uh, it was uh, Brian McLaren who reached out to him and and uh, helped console him through that uh, tough time in his life. And I think, in many ways, as a result of that friendship, uh, McLaren's friendship on Jay Baker has had a profound influence on his theology to the point where he's gutted uh, pretty much every tenet of biblical Christianity. Anyway, um, uh, um, Baker credits author Brian D. McLaren with the argument that the Bible reveals a trajectory that points inexorably from judgment and punishment to the distant past through time toward forgiveness and and all-encompassing love. Baker argues against trying to maintain scriptural consistency and proclaims that we are, quote, not stuck with the angry God encountered in the Old Testament, and yes, in some places in the New Testament in the book baker explains how he ca- he came to affirm homosexuality and even to perform at least one same-sex marriage he argues that the church must evolve in its understanding of the moral teachings in the bible he concedes that the old testament clearly condemns same-sex sexual behaviors but he rejects this as irrelevant for the church quote the truth is the bible endorses all sorts of attitudes and behaviors that we find unacceptable and illegal today, and decries others that we recognize as no big deal, he says. Now, I want to point something out here. Notice the connection between evolution and Jay Baker's theology. That that connection is not an accident. I'm telling you, over and again, the people who are pushing for the synthesis of, of evolution and Christianity— this is the theology that you end up with. You end up with the Brian McLarens, the Jay Bakers, the Michael Dowds, the uh, Doug Pagets, the um, Sh- John Shelby Spongs. You, know, you you don't end up with something that is evangelical Christianity that affirms all of the core beliefs of Christianity. But, oh, by the way, we just kind of also believe evolution. <clears throat> just pointing that out. When you take an evolutionary approach to uh The creation of the world, you end up with an evolutionary approach to theology, which basically means you can jettison all of the old standard authoritative biblical texts and basically say that Christianity has evolved beyond all of that. Just pointing that out. Anyway, Muller continues. "Um, He rejects the Old Testament as containing laws, including laws concerning human sexuality that merely, quote, reflect social concerns of another time and place. Therefore, quote, just as our thinking has evolved in these other areas, so it must evolve on the subject of homosexuality. All this evolving going on. When he turns to the New Testament, Baker identifies three texts he calls clobber scriptures. Why? Because he explains they're used to beat People over the head. These texts include 1 Timothy 1, 10, 2 Corinthians six nine and ten, Romans one twenty five through twenty seven. Baker draws from recent liberal scholarship to argue that these texts actually do not deal with homosexuality at all, but with pr- promiscuity and gang rape and immoderate indulgence. These arguments have become standard fare among those advocating for the acceptance of homosexuality, and they are trotted out in almost every public debate on the issue, but the arguments fail for two very important reasons. First, the arguments are just not faithful to the texts involved, which clearly condemn same-sex behavior. Second, the arguments are based on the absurd claim that the Church has misunderstood these texts for centuries, only to be corrected by revisionist scholars in recent decades. Nevertheless, the most important aspect of Baker's argument is his way of dismissing the text as clobber scriptures, suggesting that the church is misusing them by telling homosexual, homosexuals the same-sex behaviors are sinful. Interesting, uh, interestingly, the word clobber uh, took on the idea of physical violence only during World War II when, according to linguist, linguists, clobber was used with reference to aerial bombing raids. It is well established in our vocabulary now, which is what makes this rhetorical strategy so effective. It simply isn't right to clobber people. But is that what Christians do when we affirm the truthfulness and authority of the Bible? Is it clobbering people to point out that Scripture identifies their behavior or attitudes as sinful? Well, certainly not. At least not when the biblical truth is asserted honestly. In other words... Not when we honestly confess that our sins, too, are condemned within the same Bible. Without a knowledge of our sinfulness, we do not know of our need for a Savior. In this sense, we all need to be clobbered by the Bible so that we will know of our need for Christ. God loved sinful humanity so much... That he gave us the Bible and the law in order that we might know with revealed specificity the truth about our own sinfulness. Then we truly celebrate what it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible's condemnation of same sex behaviors is comprehensive and it's clear. It is interwoven within the Bible's message concerning God's plan for humanity, marriage and society, and the gospel. Human flourishing is found only by living in obedience to God's revealed plan. Our rebellion against the Creator is never so insidious as when we declare that our own plan is superior to His. When the Bible in part or in whole is dismissed as clobber scriptures, it is not only the Bible that is subverted, but also the gospel. The church must recognize that fact clearly and recognize it fast. I completely agree, Dr. Muller, great piece, good point. Yeah, but the the Bible is clear that uh, there's a whole range of human behavior that is sinful and contrary to uh, God's uh, God's revealed will. Um, it is every bit as uh, sinful for somebody to have lustful t- uh, thoughts towards somebody uh, who isn't their their marriage partner. It is absolutely sinful to have sex outside of marriage. It's 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 a it's a sin to lie. It's a sin to murder. It's a sin to engage in same-sex intercourse or to lust after somebody of the same sex. The Scripture is perfectly clear on this. And the purpose of the law is not to make us righteous. It is to clobber us, to show us that we do not stand justified before a holy and just God, but instead we stand condemned in our sinful nature, in our sinful behavior. And we stand condemned and rightly judged and condemned by God. But there's a second... Part to that, and that is, is that Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. So, if you don't understand your sinfulness in all of its different aspects across the whole range of, of uh, things that God has defined as sin, then you don't know what you're repenting of. You don't know what your what makes you liable to the judgment of God, and you don't understand what Christ. Has bled and died for, and as a result of it, the gospel gets subverted. Jay Baker, I understand, uh, you know, what he's experienced, but the reality is, is that his theology is a reaction to, um, is a reaction to something, and it's it's not a reaction to biblical Christianity. It's a reaction to the really bad ways in which he was mistreated by other people who claim to be Christians but he's thrown the baby out with the bathwater and as a result of it he's engaging in some form of gospel reductionism and some form of liberalized evolutionary theology and none of which are true he needs to repent and be forgiven for his false doctrine and preach the truth i hope they figure out what they're going to what they're going to believe there at their church i mean whoever heard of a church that gets going but hasn't figured out what they what their message is kind of weird isn't it i mean yeah Jesus didn't send the uh you know the uh, the his disciples out without a message they had a very clear message and uh, that that message hasn't changed, and we're to proclaim that message even to this day until Christ returns. All right, we are up on our second break. We're not going to get to the Todd Bentley uh, segment today. We'll have to save that t- uh, for tomorrow. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, at com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Good sermon review coming up. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in
1: some... You're listening to Pirate
0: Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of fighting for the face sermon review time. The slate, Todd Bentley in the um, burning ones for tomorrow. Oh, what sadness. <laughs> Alright, let's cue up the sermon review music and let's get into this. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via capitol hill baptist church washington dc dr mark dever presiding the name of the sermon propitiation the text romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 now here's my challenge As I said at the opening of the program, I want you to listen to the sermon, and I want you to then compare it to Ed Young Jr.'s sermon that we reviewed yesterday. The name of Ed Young Jr.'s sermon was Swagger Jacker, I Think I Can. Now keep this in mind, uh, the folks there at Capitol Hill Baptist Church are not seeker-driven. They have a hymnal. Um... They have not taken a, sociolog- a sociological survey in order to determine the felt needs of the religious seekers in, in and around the Washington, D.C. area. And Mark Dever, Dever here is doing a, um, an expository Bible sermon. Now, according to all of the church growth gurus, Dr. Mark Dever is doing everything wrong. Okay, The folks there at Capitol Hill Baptist are behind the times. They're irrelevant. They can't possibly grow. Because in order to make the gospel and Christianity relevant, you've got to chuck expository preaching. You've got to preach for felt needs. You've got to stop feeding God's sheep during a Sunday morning service. And you, you absolutely got to get rid of a hymnal. That's all got to go. But then ask yourself this question. Compared to... One of the primary head leaders of the Seeker Driven Church, um, that would be Ed Young Jr., after listening to both sermons, ask yourself, if you were a a non-believer, if you were somebody who was not a Christian, and you went to both of those churches in order to try to figure out what Christianity is all about, who, after this sermon, has done the better job of actually teaching God's word, giving a clear explanation of the problem that mankind is in, and the clear presentation of the gospel as the solution. Who has done the better job? The the, the, the doctor who is irrelevant in all of his methodologies, or the guy who, uh, well, is as, tries to be as relevant as relevant can be, and even to the point of making up his own words. Who has given a more clear presentation? Who would benefit the non-believer more Ed Young Jr. or Dr. Mark Dever? That's the the challenge for you. I need you to take this question seriously. Mm -hmm. All right. Without any further ado, here is Dr. Mark Dever. It's a long sermon. It's about an hour and five. I will interrupt. Not much at all, if at all. Uh, and again, you're you're listening to find out who, if you were a non-believer, who would get who would be, benefit the non-believer more. Here we go. In his
3: commentary on Romans, Cambridge Professor C. H. Dodd wrote seventy years ago that wrath, God's wrath, meant not a certain feeling or attitude of God towards us but some process or effect in the realm of objective facts. The wrath of God, he says, is is taken out of the sphere of the purely mysterious and brought into the sphere of cause and effect. Sin is the cause, disaster the effect. Wrath describes not the attitude of God to man, but describes an inevitable process of cause and effect in the moral universe. This kind of God without wrath has been promoted in many Christian institutions, including churches, for decades now. In a popular book published just a few years ago, The authors write, the Bible never defines God as anger, power, or judgment. In fact, it never defines him as anything other than love. Many modern scholars, even at schools known as being evangelical, have written and suggested that emphasizing the idea of the penal substitution of Christ, that is, he was substituted to bear our penalty, Christ died as a substitute for sinners and so satisfied God's wrath against us for our sins, that that is a terrible idea. It seems inherently to contain in it ideas of God and his character that are not noble. Anger, wrath, judgment that Dodd and so many later writers have decried. They object that this emphasis on Christ condemned in our place in order to deliver us from God's wrath obscures other images that God's Word uses to describe what Christ did for us on the cross. They suggest that penal substitution is really a totally irrelevant idea today anyway. People don't understand such ideas of, of sacrifice in a world where fewer and fewer people have ever seen an animal being killed to be given to a deity. They've said it makes the good news not very good. And that, in fact, it seems to sanction, as these critics say, and I quote, a kind of divine child abuse. That's how Steve Chalk has put it in his book *The Lost Message of Jesus*. He quotes John 3:16. And by the way, any time a book is titled *The Lost Message of Jesus*, you might just want to stop and question. <laughs> but now you've found it. Uh. <laughs> He asks, how then have we come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he's not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Well, you must kind of agree with what Chalk says. But does the Bible teach that God planned to present his own son as a sacrifice? If not, what was going on at the cross? If so, what was it that Jesus wanted? Was it child abuse? Or did he lay down his his life willingly? What was the end to be accomplished? Why would God have done this? Well, all these questions and more are addressed this morning in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. If you're using the Bibles provided here in the West Hall, uh, you'll find that on page 1180. And if you're using the Bibles provided over here in the main hall, you should find that on page 1180. Wait, 1,180 here in the main hall, and 1,114 in the West Hall. While you're turning there, let me uh, give you simply a couple of sort of orientation points. First, as we move now from the Gospels, where the teaching of Jesus is recorded, to the letters in the New Testament, where the rest of this series will be, some people may be feeling, well, we've done the best part. You know, we have seen what Jesus has to say about his undeveloped, what he himself taught, but if, that's, if you're even tempted to think this more, that this morning, I'd like to challenge that thought just a little bit. Just as we saw in the Old Testament books of Exodus and Leviticus and Isaiah, that they were inspired by God's Spirit to teach us what God would do with His Son, so these New Testament letters are inspired by God's Spirit to explain to us the significance of what He did at the cross. And this is a typical pattern we find in Scripture. God doesn't mutely act like some pagan deity, capriciously throwing down lightning bolts. When the God of the Bible acts, he acts with purpose. He predicts, and then he acts, and then he interprets his action. We see this with a great salvation event in the Old Testament, the Exodus. God predicted, he taught about it, he did it, and then for centuries afterwards, he referred back to it, interpreting it and explaining its significance to the people of Israel. And he did it with the great salvation event in the New Testament as well, the cross. He predicted it, he did it, and then he interprets, he explains that death. And this is what the letter to the Romans is doing. And now to the letter itself. Our, our study today and the next three are going to be from this magnificent letter. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll find that Paul, so far in Romans, has introduced himself Then in chapter 1 there, verses 16 and 17, he has announced the gospel, just sort of a, a summary announcement. And then really from the next verse, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way over to our passage, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul makes clear that God's wrath is revealed against all who sin, Gentile and Jew. Paul argues us all, really, into this conclusion that we find here in chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So Paul has set up the problem. No one, he says, will be declared righteous by observing the law. No one by observing the law. He has shown the absolute necessity for something else. For the gospel that he announced back in chapter 1. Leon Morris has called our passage today possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. This is the heart of Paul's great letter to the Romans. In our passage, Paul describes the way of salvation. Here in the heart of Romans, in one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, we see how the one true God would save us. Verse
4: 21.
3: But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God through faith, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Three questions this morning as we explore this paragraph. Three questions. Number one. What is our situation? What is our situation? Number two, and we'll spend most of our time here, how can we be saved? How can we be saved? And number three, why did God save us? Why did God save us? First then, number one, what is our situation? In a word, it's bad. It's dire. Chapters 1 to 3 to this point have shown that everyone is in trouble. We are separated from God and sinful. We are all spiritually enslaved, spiritually dead, spiritually condemned. You start in chapter 1, verse 18. You go through chapter 3, verse 20, and you see that we are all in need. Paul references it in our own passage in verse 23. When he says, all have sinned. You look back through these preceding chapters and you find lists of, of godlessness and wickedness that if we're honest or if we knew ourselves well enough, we would no describe us. Judgmentalism and hypocrisy, faithlessness and unrighteousness, sin, all around rejection of God, it's all there. Paul refers to it in that Brief verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This letter makes it clear that we are depraved. The Christian scriptures warn us that we have rejected God by our hands and our hearts. By what we do and what we love. The the word right here, have sinned, is in the aorist. It's past action. It's completed. I, I think it's referring to our fallen Adam. We've all sinned in Adam. Paul comes back to that in chapter 5. But then he says we also continue to fall short. That's in the present continuous. Uh, We have all sinned in Adam, and we all confirm that by the sins we ourselves commit. There is something in us that resents God, that resents even being told what to do. You know that's true. Look at your own life. The marketers know that's true. I was looking in the New Yorker this week. There was this ad for BMW. And what did it have? But this little booklet here with the word no on it. They had the booklet sealed. What did I immediately want to do? That's right. Furthermore, when it was laying there on my table and Patrick Schreiner came in, as far as I know, he's regenerate. He's an intern here in our church. Patrick sees it and almost lunges for it to begin to open it. Before I stop him say, no, I want to use that as a sermon illustration. (laughs) Now, I still haven't opened it. I assume it's telling us about some really neat car in there. But do you see there's something in us that's more than just curiosity. There's something in us that doesn't want to be told no. Oh, we don't mind being told when there's something we don't want to do. But when there's something we want... Well, that's the ultimate question for us. What we want. The etymology of this word that's used for sin here in verse 23 is missing the mark. But it's not the mark merely that we have wanted to hit. No, no. This is the mark of what God calls us to hit. Many Christian pulpits today have watered down this idea of sin. Sin, they say, is is not reaching your full human potential. Well... It is true that sin causes one not to reach one's full human potential. That's true. But it's a lousy definition. Sin is fundamentally about our relationship with God. Sin is what we have done against God, not even just against his laws, but against him. We have rejected him. We no longer relate to him as our loving heavenly father. And because God is good, we now then face his opposition, his just wrath against us. For our sins. People are sinners. Individually and universally. Paul has just said that up there in those verses we read in chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. He says it again here in verse 23 when he says fall short of the glory of God. We have been removed from the presence of God. He has become invisible to us. His glories are gone from our experience. They are gone to us in our lives. These are the ravages of the fall, strife and war, ruin and misery, and eagerness for hatred, even to the point of murder. And I could continue. Friends, the newspapers illustrate it. Even this last week has given more bitter evidence of it. This is the dark picture of the human situation. I wonder if you think I'm exaggerating this. If you're not a Christian... I realize all this may surprise you. You may think of Christians as just those eternally sweet people who believe they should just give and give and think everybody is basically good. Well, that's not what we see here in Scripture. We don't see that the Bible teaches that everybody is basically good. I wonder if you think that you deserve all the good things that have happened to you. Well, that's not the way the Bible presents it. I've shared this story before, but... You're a transient congregation, and half of you won't have heard it. Maybe it'll be of help. <laughs> of the Hare Krishna I talked to in Cambridge. When I was, uh, I'd been at Marks and Spencer's in the center of the town and was standing out, was, was leaving with Annie. She was in a little stroller, and uh, the uh, Hare Krishna comes up to me trying to sell a magazine. And I just say, no, thank you. Uh, and he said, well, why not? You know, it's for a good, good Christian camp work. And I said, well, because I don't think what you're saying is true. And he seemed surprised by that. You don't think it's true? What do you mean you don't think it's true? And I said, well, I'm a Christian. And then he seemed kind of relieved. He said, well, look, we're Christians too. He said, we believe in Jesus. And I said, yeah, yeah, but you believe in Jesus sort of like my Hindu friends might believe in Jesus. You believe that that God is is in anything, right? He said, sure. I said, no, 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 we believe that Jesus is the one, the only, the true God. That's it, totally unlike us in that. And he went, oh. And I said... I said, now, you know, you know don't, don't worry, if, if you and I both had megaphones and we were talking to all the people walking around here, they didn't know I was the Christian, you were the Hare Krishna, they, they would all agree with you. They wouldn't agree with what I believe. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you think people are basically good, right? He said, sure, of course. I said, see, I think people are basically bad. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, people have been made in God's image, but we all turn in on ourselves. We serve ourselves. We reject God by our actions. That's the truth of all of our lives, the lives of everybody on this planet. Anyway, we kept talking a little bit longer. And he realized that uh, I was not going to buy the magazine. (laughs) But the the longest bit of the conversation was about this idea because he was so surprised. He thought that, of course, Christianity teaches that people are basically good. But, friends, it doesn't teach that at all. Christianity tells you the truth about your heart in a way no other religion will. This is why, by the way, Christianity, if I can just walk perilously near political waters for a moment. Mm. (laughs) This is why Christianity has tended to be a force for limited government powers. Not in the sense of libertarian versus New Deal Roosevelt. I'm not talking about American partisan things. No, but I mean in the kind of restraint of the concentration of power in the hands of sinful individuals. From Calvin's middle magistrate to Samuel Rutherford's book, The Law is King, Christianity has been suspicious of giving too much authority to a single sinful individual. Because of this understanding of depravity, Christianity has always been sort of anti-utopian. It's been atheistic philosophies that have foisted the great utopian lies on our world in the last century. Not Christianity. We believe that no job, no relationship, no amount of money, no economy, no president will ever end the fallen state of our world. Good can be done, and great good can be done. But until Christ returns, this world will always be falling. So, is there any hope if Christianity presents such a a dim view of this world? Yes. Yes. Yes, there is. Look at verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Look again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, But now, and now a new day begins. Paul now presents the great change. But now, he says here in verse 21, we've been described so fully and accurately by Paul in desperate terms, even more accurate than they are painful to us, I fear. Like back in chapter 1, verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. But now, but now when we come to verse 21 in chapter 3, in the light of God's hope cleaves the dark sky of our own sin and its due punishment. And After this darkness that we've had portrayed to us up through verse 20, this lightning stroke of God's grace fills the sky and lifts the night of our condemnation. But now, but now apart from the law, there is no righteousness by obeying the law. The way of law keeping has been blocked up. That's what this whole letter has shown. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, he's got a great picture in that with Mr. Legality who before he goes through the wicked gate, before he trusts Christ, he goes over to Mount Sinai, which looks, looks very low from a distance. He'll just go to the celestial city that way. But as he starts to tread up this hill, it tends to get steeper and steeper until finally it even sort of bends over on him. There's no way forward. The, the law deceives. The law is there to show us what we cannot do. The law is there to show us, to drive us out of ourselves and to show us that we need another way. Now, friends, hear this carefully. Before we go on to investigate the way of salvation in this passage, we need to know there is no salvation apart from despair of our own self-righteousness. If you are treasuring hope of your own righteousness before God, you have no room in your heart for treasuring the righteousness of Christ as your only hope. Christ is not one among many options. He's not part of a mixed portfolio of religious trusts. The only way to Christ is to realize your complete and utter need of him. We cannot be saved until we realize this. He cannot be your help until you realize you are utterly helpless.
0: Okay, pause there for a second. I want to point something out. Notice that uh, the sermon I picked out from Dr. Mark Dever hit on some of the same themes that... Uh, uh, that ed young jr attempted to pick up on in his swagger jacker sermon but uh, who's giving us a clearer explanation as to what's going on and was ed young even clear enough uh, did he anyway we continue utterly helpless he cannot be your aid
3: you will not see him until you acknowledge your spiritual blindness you will not hear him until you acknowledge that you have rejected his words You will not live until you know your spiritual deadness to him. Conviction of sin always precedes conversion. Conviction of sin always precedes conversion.
0: Okay, pause right there.
3: Like the blind man, we Christians are...
0: If uh, Dr. Dever is right, and I think he's got a compelling biblical case here, conviction of sin precedes conversion... Um, when Ed Young preached yesterday, were people convicted of their sins prior to their conversion at the seeker-driven service there? Just asking the question.
3: There are those who say, I was blind, but now I see. And so we live lives in this world that are distinct from others around us. Those who are still on the sort of other side of the but now. We Christians all have this in common. We recognize that our greatest need has nothing to do with more money or a job or our kids. It has to do with our sins. You know, polls right now are subdividing the electorate into every reachable potential pocket of votes. You know? But my friends, Christianity would say to us that we are all subsets of one great set of sinners. You know, we may be single sinners, married sinners, married sinners with kids, male sinners, on and on. But we are all sinners. Now Christ finds those who know that. And Christians are those who have confessed that we're sinners. We are saved, but we are saved sinners. We are being made holy by God's Spirit, but he's obviously not done with us yet. Kids, you are probably told that you're going to grow out of things all the time. You're going to grow out of that habit, that hobby, those clothes, those interests. Let me tell you something you're not going to grow out of. You're not going to grow out of your sins. You will not escape your sins by growing up. There has to be another way that we escape the grasp of sin. And that's what Paul writes about in this paragraph. You want to understand this paragraph in the Bible. So if that's our situation by nature, and if there is now hope, what is that hope? Number two, how can we be saved? And Paul has three things here to say. This will take up most of our time. Three things to say about this, that we can be saved. Number one, only by God. Number two, only through Christ. Number three, only through faith. Number one, only by God. Number two, only through Christ. Number three, only through faith. Let's look at these in turn. First, we can be saved only by God. God alone may save us. And he does that through his own righteousness. You see there in verses 21 and 22 the references to a righteousness from God. Friend, if you or I are saved, it's only because of God and his righteousness. Look at verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is from God. Look at what God has provided for us, His own righteousness. Paul had mentioned this back in his Gospel summary in chapter 1. When you read back in chapter 1, verse 17, "...for in the Gospel a righteousness from God is revealed." And then he goes on from verse 18 over to chapter 3, verse 20, telling this reason that we need such a gospel. Before this but now there was the wrath of God, but now there is the righteousness from God. This is the good news, that there is this righteousness from God that has, as he says here in verse 21, been made known. That's in a tense that shows that Paul is referring to a specific past and completed action. So how has the righteousness of God been made known? Well, supremely by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says that this righteousness has been made known apart from the law. What law? Well, up in verses 19 and 20, I think Paul is clearly referring to the first five books of the Bible. Though in chapter 2, he refers to the moral law that's revealed naturally in, in everyone's heart. So Paul isn't referring to God saving us by a righteousness that is our own and by our our obeying it. No, this righteousness from God, Paul says here, to which the law and the prophets testify. Well, what righteousness do the law and the prophets testify to? What could that be? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his perfect life. It's substitutionary, sin-bearing death. When you look at the early Christians in the book of Acts, this is what they're preaching. Peter, when he's at Cornelius' house in Acts 10, he says, All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. The law couldn't bring us righteousness, but the law bore witness to one who would. And this is all by God's grace. Salvation is all by grace. You see that wonderful repetition in verse 24 a gift of his grace, or freely by his grace. Paul repeats the idea. It's a gift. It's only by grace. Now, sometimes people will, in ignorance, represent the Christian gospel as a a loving son trying to persuade an unwilling or at least a reluctant father to show mercy. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, here we see that God the Father was not reluctant. He planned our salvation. And he initiated it. He acted it. it. It was his gift. It was only by His grace. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the author of our salvation. No one else could save us. All others who claim that they can save you lie. God alone can save us from God's own wrath against us because of our sins. If we are to be saved, it must be by God's grace. According to His own plan. As Paul says here in verse 25, it was God who presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would exhort you to learn more about this hope-filled news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Learn more about what God has done. Give your name to one of the folks who will be standing at the doors afterwards. Uh, We've we've got a a course coming up called Christianity Explored that uh, I think Chris and Tessa Ambridge are going to be leading. uh, Maybe next month it'll be uh, in the evenings, just going through Mark's Gospel. You're under no obligation if you attend it. But it's just us trying to serve you by helping you learn about Jesus Christ. So consider doing that. If you already know the message about Jesus Christ, let me implore you to acknowledge the truth of Christ. Acknowledge him as your Lord. Trust him with your whole life. Jesus Christ is the way God means to save you if ever you will be saved. There is no self-salvation, not even through your important Washington job not through your heroic military service, not through your great unheralded work with your children, there is no self-salvation. If ever you are to be saved, it must be by the gift of God's righteousness given to you through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, since you have been saved in this way, you realize that you should have a reputation For reflecting this character in your relationship with others. What do you mean by that, Mark? Well, I mean, if you really have been saved by God's grace, then you should be known as being gracious. You should be known as being generous.
0: If we were to phone a couple of the people who... Okay, pause. Notice the therefore of the gospel. I mean, the, he's preaching third use of the law here. He's doing it correctly, too. There's a therefore to being saved, and he's doing it right. of the people who worked most closely
3: with you over this last week, people in your office, maybe kids at home, what would they say about you? Friends, we need God's grace. No nationality, no ethnicity, no vote, no gender, no marital status will ever entitle any of us to salvation. No, if we are saved, it is only because of the grace of God. Parents, how are you, how are you modeling this to your children? Are they seeing this in the way that you work with them? Or do they assume that you think you earn salvation? <coughs> Pray that God help you to model his relationship with others as you work with them. We need to reflect the gospel. And shouldn't thinking about the gracious nature of our salvation give us confidence? Friends, if it's based on what we do, then we have basis for fear because maybe we don't do it well enough. But if it's based on what God does, what a great ground for confidence and, and joy we have. We're not in some religion where we think we're ever treading on the verge of hell. No, we're saved by God's grace towards us. And and shouldn't this make us quick to forgive? Shouldn't this show itself in the way we deal with others when we've been wrong? If, If the Lord has shown to you your own sin, your sin against him, and has convicted you of that, how different what it is you're getting from what you deserve to get then how should that affect the way you deal with others when they commit their sins against you? The merciful are usually those who have themselves known mercy. And doesn't meditating on this encourage humility? You know, people who think they save themselves by their church attendance or their financial giving or their progressive attitudes or their, their certain religious careful honesty... They're proud people. They're people who don't know that salvation can never come by anything they do. But I love the question that Paul puts to the Corinthians. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? One reason that we as a church get so excited as we sing, you know, Son of God slain for us, what a love what a cost we stand for given at the cross, is because we know we don't deserve it. There may be people in the city who have high-paying jobs and are worth every cent of it, who've earned it, but we are not here at a meeting of the religious elite, the moral minority, who have earned our place in the pew. We are those who are properly astounded When we sing that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die. We can only be saved from the penalty our sins deserve. By the very one we've sinned against. By God himself. How can we be saved? Well first we can be saved only by God. But second we can be saved only through Christ. God has set forth only Christ to save us. Throughout this paragraph, there's this special vocabulary of salvation. So here in verse 24, we see the language of Christ's redemption of us. It says, by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, this is the language of the marketplace, the language of buying and selling. You would talk about redeeming someone or redeeming yourself out of slavery. God speaks of redeeming Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Well, here in verse 24, it appears that God has so graciously acted toward us that God has, has worked in this way by redeeming us in Christ. So all of us who are in Christ are delivered. We're redeemed. But there's also here in verse 24 the language of justification. You see that? And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. O. jones called this verse a, a perfect synopsis of the Christian faith, and, and I can understand why. Here we see that God saves us through his justifying us by Christ, and this is the language of the law court and of relationships. God justifies us, we see here, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, this language of justification has, has been language that's known far more controversy in the history of Christianity. When Paul says here that Christians are justified, some have thought... That he means that God makes Christians righteous in ourselves, that he helps us to be good. But this entirely misses the point. If you look down at chapter 4, verse 5, Paul is explicit that the God who saves us is the God who justifies the wicked. Now, friends, we can't weasel our own qualities, our own merits into this. When Paul writes here of our being justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, he means not our becoming in and of ourselves righteous. That's not what justification means. But our being regarded by God as righteous, declared righteous. This justification through Christ is a judicial pardon of all our sins. Because we're clothed in His righteousness. This righteousness from God through Christ. We are now clothed with it. And so, we are justified. It's a, it's a positive declaration. So it's, it's a pardon for all of our sins, but it's more than that. It is this declaration which then restores us to fellowship with the Holy God. I love the way Marcus Sloan put this. He, he was, uh, I think he's still alive, he was a former Archbishop of Sydney, precursor of Peter Jensen, who's preached here before. He says, the voice that spells forgiveness will say... You may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sins deserve. But the verdict, which means acceptance, justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Friends, if you're justified, you realize, you understand that it's not merely that God has let you off because the penalty has been paid, but that there are no longer any ground for God to condemn you, to punish you. Because those have all been met by Christ. You're not trembling living on the verge of hell. You're trembling living on the verge of heaven. That God has loved you so in Christ that there is no longer any charge to be made against you. Because Christ has taken it all. The punishment has happened, but it happened to Christ. When the Protestant reformers recovered this biblical gospel, the Church of Rome feared. They thought, if you believe that, you're going to live immoral lives. But friends, that's if you only think morality is driven by fear and guilt. There's another morality, the morality we find in the Bible it's not self-centered and fearful but it's god-centered and hopeful that we run toward the one in whose image we're made that when our holiness has been given us in Christ when our righteousness that when his righteousness has been given us as our own and we're clothed with it then we run with great hope toward this one in whom we desire to spend all our days in whom are all our hopes this is the basis for our Christian lives. Our justification marks the initiation of our sanctification, of our being made holy. And this is a surprise, even the shock that we find in Romans, in that verse that I read a moment ago, in chapter 4, verse 5. God who justifies the wicked. People will say, well, God will make us righteous, and when we're finally righteous enough, perfectly righteous, then he will justify us. Oh, thank God that is not what the Bible teaches. There's no hope for us there. The hope is in the fact that, as Paul says in chapter 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Some have wondered if the all here in verse 23, since that means all have sinned, well then in verse 24, would it mean that everybody has been justified? Is Paul teaching universalism, the idea that everyone has been saved in Christ? Not at all. First of all, it's clear from the larger context that Paul is not saying we're all justified. That's what those first three chapters have been about. He made it explicit. But also, even in this immediate sentence, it's one sentence you see there from the end of 22 through 24. He's making the point that the righteous through faith in Jesus, apart from the law, are those who are truly righteous, counted righteous in God's sight. Paul's point is that all who are made righteous are made righteous in this way. So in verses 22, 23, 24, this one long sentence, he spells that out, showing that those who are so made righteous before God are all themselves sinners. There's not a distinction between some not being sinners and some. No, all who are justified are also sinners, and they have all been justified only freely by faith in Christ. We also find here in verse 25 the language about God saving us through Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation, some translations will have. That's the language of the temple. Blood is clearly central to Paul's thoughts about Jesus. Blood stands for Jesus' death, of course, and it's Christ's death that is said here to be the object of our faith. Well, you know, if you keep reading the book of Romans, that death only comes as a result of sin. Well, but Christ himself had no sins. So why did he die? Well, his death too was a result of sin, but not of his own sin, of our sins. He bore our penalty. He was our substitute in the way he died on the cross, condemned for our sins. As I say, the sacrifice of atonement was called, in some older translations, propitiation. Uh, this is related to the word that's used for the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat that we saw back in Leviticus 16, that place where God's wrath would be assuaged, satisfied, propitiated by the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb. The NIV translates it here, sacrifice of atonement. However we translate it, the point is that Christ removes the penalty of our sin by removing the wrath of God. Our sin... It's not the primary object of this sacrifice. That's why if you're reading a translation that says expiate, and you happen to know what expiate means, with all of its theological connotations, which nobody would if you hadn't had a class in it, expiation just means cover over sin, and that's got it half right. But if they present that half thing as the whole thing, it's just not true. Because the main point of Christ's sacrifice is not covering over our sins. He does that. But the main point of Christ's sacrifice is satisfying God's correct wrath against us. Because of our sins. That's what the word propitiation indicates. And this wasn't just Paul's idea. I mean, you, you remember that Jesus taught his disciples that all those prophecies about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 were fulfilled in his death. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He bore the sin of many. That's what a propitiation is. It's a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and thereby turns aside the wrath of God from us. And contrary to what Professor Dodd taught, there is nothing dishonorable about God being wrathful. In fact, if he were not wrathful against sin, that would cause us to question whether or not he is personally good, what he means when he says he is personally opposed to evil. But he is good, and he is opposed to evil, and it is personal. That commitment is shared by the Son who willingly gave himself up. Again, you see God's grace here. You see, he has provided for us. We don't work to appease God's wrath. No, this idea is not something that, that we are trembling next to a volcano, and so we search around for something in the village we can give to appease the gods. That's not the Christian idea of propitiation at all. That's not what the sacrifice of atonement is about. God himself has spoken. He has told us the way. And more than that, God himself provides the way. John Stott summarizes these differences beautifully when he says, It would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. According to the Christian revelation... God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. It is the death of the son that allows the father to forgive with both justice and mercy. Thus, perfectly fulfilling his own holiness, and his own love. So Jesus Christ is our substitute. He took our penalty. He was bound that we might be freed. He was condemned that we might be accepted. He was killed that we might live. I say we, but of whom is this true? Who are are the we Well, let's think again. How can we be saved? Well, we can be saved only by God and only through Christ. But third, we can be saved only through faith. Only through faith. The benefits of Christ's life and death come to us only through Christ. Only through faith in Him. See this here in verse 22. He says, Through faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way Lloyd Jones talks about this faith. He says, He says, this faith here is the protest. It is this standing up in spite of everything that may be said against us on earth or in hell. We say, No, no one can finally convict me because of my new position in Christ Jesus. But now I am no longer in condemnation. I was once there, but I am no longer there. What's the nature of this faith? Well, it includes knowledge about something and also agreeing that something is so and further it must include a trusting in that faith looks to Christ believes him and trusts him faith doesn't save us, it doesn't cause our salvation anytime we speak of salvation by faith we are at best speaking in theological shorthand what we mean is faith in Christ. Faith is the instrument which God uses to save us through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the point. Note in verse 22 what comes through faith. Verse 22, he says righteousness. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We need not merely to have the record of our sins canceled, but we need to have a positive righteousness in order to be united to God again, to have fellowship with His holy God. And this comes to us through faith in Jesus. Or as he says here, down in verse 25, through faith in his blood. You see that verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 25 makes it clear that central to saving faith in Christ is faith in his blood. Central to the saving mission of Jesus Christ was his his death on the cross. As we've seen, it's through Christ's death on the cross that God propitiates himself and justifies and redeems us. And what a good thing this is for us. Because that means God saves Whoever has faith in Jesus. No other qualification, no other work, no other standard to be met. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The amazing news here that after after centuries of distinction, the way of salvation for Jew and Gentile was the same. So it is. There's no distinction by religious background or ethnicity, politics or nationality. Salvation, he says, comes to all who believe. Now this call to believe is both exclusive and it's comprehensive. It's exclusive In the sense that it's only through faith in Jesus. But it's comprehensive in that it's for all. Because there are no qualifications that require one to be a Jew or a Gentile. Old or young. Male or female. You simply must believe in Jesus Christ. And in his death for you on the cross. Believe and you shall be saved. You shall be justified. Redeemed. My non-Christian friend, this is a call for you. God has made you in His image. You are made to know Him. You have sinned against Him. This this book in its earlier chapters is a description of, of your life as well as mine. And yet God in His great mercy has sent His Son to take on flesh and live the life that we should have lived. And He died the death that we deserve to die. And He raised Him from the dead. Showing that he had accepted the sacrifice. His wrath was assuaged for all who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Who will turn and have faith in him and believe in him. And that is what you should do. You should turn from your sins. You're not getting a good return on them now. You will get a worse return on them in the future. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Believe him. Have faith in him. Christ is the object of our faith. And so faith comes only by hearing about him. By by hearing a message like the one you're hearing right now. This is how faith comes. It doesn't have to be in a church gathering like this. We know from the book of Acts, the Ethiopian official was out in a chariot in the wilderness when Philip shared this message with him. Saul was walking on the, the road to Damascus. Cornelius was sitting in his own home. Lydia was in an outdoor Jewish female prayer meeting in Greece. Now, you can be in any kind of setting, and you can have any kind of messenger, but this is the message you must hear and believe. This is the message that creates faith. My brothers and sisters, do you want your co-workers to come to Christ? Just think for a moment. Rhetorical preacher question, but, but think for a moment. Do you want your coworkers to come to Christ? How will they if nobody ever shares this message with them? How will that happen? How will they have saving faith in Christ if no one ever tells them about Christ? Can you think of two or three people that you see in the average month who aren't Christians? Just try to name them in your mind right now. Two or three people you see in the average month who aren't Christians. Would you like to see them saved? How will they be if they don't hear this message? How do you expect them to hear this message? Could they hear it through you? Could they? Will they? Another thing. I was preaching last week in Chicago. From Revelation chapter 7, great vision of the end was the great multitude and the Lamb. I looked, we read in the book of Revelation, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, you realize this congregation is a little preview of that. This congregation is a little preview of that great assembly that all we believers will be a part of. We've got nothing in common but language and Jesus. We're old and young, married and single, bosses and those looking for work. There are a lot of things we don't have in common with each other. But you know what? We don't need those things in common. In fact, the gospel is made even more clear by us not having all those things in common. Because what we do have in common, what must be the reason for our meeting together, is then highlighted. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is faith the most important thing in your life? Your faith in Christ? Would your kids say so? Would your parents say so? Or do you have some other circumstances you've elevated to that place? Your friendship, the degree you're working on, the job you must have, some good works that you do? Friends, if you would grow in Christ, study the cross. Study the cross. It will burn off all the stupid, silly things we get wrongly distracted by. Let me suggest to you four books. Might as well. Here's number one. You'll have heard me mention all four of these before. But I would strongly encourage you to get and read any one of these that you haven't. And don't read it to get through it. Take your time. We're not going to give a quiz. You know, you don't have to finish it by the end of the year. Just enjoy it. Meditate on it. Number one, C.J. Mahaney's little book, The Cross-Centered Life. A wonderful little book. That's the only easy book out of these four. Number two, the book that we've named the series after, Pierced for Our Transgressions, by Mike Ovian and Company. Read through, think more about the cross, understand more about Christ's substitution for you. Number three, Robert Lethem's book, The Work of Christ. Letham, L-E-T-H-A-M, The Work of Christ. And number four, John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. Any one of these books could help you grow in your appreciation for what God has done for you. For that matter, so could your hymnals. I don't want you to take the one that's sitting there. But have you ever thought of getting a hymnal and using that in your own personal quiet time? I find few things as edifying as looking at the compacted imagery of hymns. Uh, The Lord has gifted the church with hymn writers who pour out their hearts in words of devotion that certainly stir my heart. Consider getting a good hymnal and using it in meditating. You want to know something else you can do to give your faith in Christ a practical workout? Relate more closely to those you have less in common with. Relate more closely to those you have less in common with. Figure out how you can more naturally reach out and care for that Christian who is poorer than you are. Don't be made nervous by their poverty in some worldly way. Reach out and care. Include them more normally in your life. Invite that person whose education intimidates you to do something with you and your friends. You might be surprised how much they enjoy that with you commonly in Christ. Um, American members... Reach out to our members from Asia or Latin America or Africa. Do we really have to go to their continent before we get invited into somebody's home for a meal together? Can we not invite them to our homes for a meal together while they're here? Are the people you invited to your home for meals all white, single people? Well, let me suggest you think of something else. We've got a lot of other choices. Friends, the fellowship we have together in Christ is sweet. Taste it and see. That's what we as a congregation mean to be about more and more because we know that that testifies to the fact that we are saved only by trusting in Christ. Or as the Reformation put it, only by God's grace, only through faith, only in Christ. That's the answer to our main question. How can we be saved? Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so we cry, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. One last question to end with. Why? Why did God save us? Some critics of the idea of God's wrath see this whole idea of Christ dying to satisfy God's wrath as irrelevant in the modern world. Or even making a mockery of Jesus' teaching to love your enemies. Well, here's what Paul said about it in our passage. Look at verse 25. God did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There was no adequate retribution for the sins of God's people committed before Christ's death. They were in that sense unpunished. And God's having left these sins apparently unpunished may have been used as evidence by some, For the false conclusion that God would never punish sin. The sort of because he hasn't done it yet, he never will argument. That people use about the second coming all the time. But in Christ's death on the cross, God was offering the solution to the problem of the fall. He was solving the ancient riddle of how he, the holy and good God, could show mercy. Do you remember right after the debacle of the golden calf in the wilderness? In Exodus 34, the Lord reveals Himself. We read in Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed His name, the Lord. And He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. How could that be? Friends, that's that's the riddle of the Old Testament. That's the riddle of the ages, really. How could God be like this? How could God both forgive rebellion, wickedness, and sin, and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? And now here in Romans, we learn the way. This is how God could do that. God has saved us. And in a way that is consistent with his character. At the cross of Christ, he demonstrates his justice. He is good. He will take vengeance. No sin will go unpunished. And yet, at the same time, at the cross, he will show himself to be full of mercy. The one who, as Paul says here, is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. See, you and I see the salvation of ourselves and the salvation of those we love. And we're excited about it and God is all for our salvation. He's given it to us as a gift. But also God is about something else, something larger. God is demonstrating himself. He has a larger end in mind. The display of his character to his creation. The theater of his splendor and glory. glory. In Romans 9, we read, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Did you realize such momentous displays of God's nature and his character were going on right here, right now? We Christians are walking demonstrations of God's power. Jesus taught, All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. We have his character stamped on us. His spirit recreates it in us. This is why Paul instructed the Philippians, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you become blameless, become blameless and without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life. Have you ever noticed that this is why God does everything He does? To get glory for Himself? To make the truth about Himself known? Every time you you read a chapter in Ezekiel, you, you trip over the phrase in order that they will know that I am the Lord. So that they should know that I am the Lord. We read in Ephesians 3 that God's intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize that all this is going on in the church? In plain old you and me? It is because the real God is personal. His plans involve his own person. His opposition to sin is real and personal. And this God desires to be and to be known to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would continue your amazing work of displaying your own nature and glory by justifying those who have faith in Jesus. We thank you for how you have done that already. And Lord, we pray for still more of those who do not have faith in you yet to come to know more about what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ and to understand and to agree and to believe and to trust. And Lord, we turn and ask you of this because only you can work these things in our hearts. And so we ask it for your glory and for the good of all those gathered here. In Jesus name.
0: Amen. Amen. Great sermon. Now, it might seem like it's unfair to compare. I mean, I mean, we're talking about Dr. Mark Dever, but um no, it's not unfair to compare. I'm convinced that the average non-believer would learn more and understand far more accurately what the Bible teaches, have a far has a far better chance of hearing the gospel about sin and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ in churches like Dr. Devers that have hymnals and Open Bibles uh, don't have the big fireworks rock and roll shows Sunday after Sunday that don't engage in relevance for the sake of relevance and chasing after the latest wind of this and that. But instead, the, the congregations where the pastor understands that he is a, she- a under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, rather than going out and being an innovative vision caster, he instead seeks to faithfully handle God's Word and to feed Christ's sheep with God's word so here's the challenge go and listen again to you know after he- hearing this listen then to uh to Ed Young swagger jacker i think i can one is supposed to be the epitome of seeker driven relevance a model for other pastors to follow so that they can make the 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 bible and christianity more relevant to a, a lost world who isn't interested in Christianity, and so they're trying to make it more appealing. And then listen again to this. Who has done the job of faithfully handling God's Word, and who really benefits the so-called seeker? I'm not saying that's a real category, but you know, the, the non-Christian who wants to know about Christianity, who wants to understand what it is that Christianity is all about. Who will they get the truth from? Who will benefit them more, a church with a hymnal and an open Bible, or one with a fireworks rock and roll show, or one who ends up just being awkward like Michael Scott from The Office? Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you're not already a member of our crew, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. It's only $6.95 every month. Not a lot of money, and we'll send you this month's uh, perk, and that's uh, at the ebook entitled... Uh, the, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, fine book, good solid biblical exegesis. It's a VIP tour through the uh, the, book, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Well, well worth it. And uh, just a reminder, we're ha- we're still in the middle of our T-shirt bake sale in order to try to make budget for the month of June. And uh, if you would like to uh, purchase a T-shirt designed and silk screened by me and signed by me. Go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, order yours today. Of course, if you'd like to make a a one-time contribution, click on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me, at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his propitiatory penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Amen.